Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the newsstand radio at Join as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Nastasia? Good. You doing well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you look well. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Got uh, got uh, John. John in the booth with us. How you doing? Doing great, thanks. Yeah? Yeah? You in yeah. Uh, New York these days? Are you in... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Back in New York, basically now full-time again. I'll tell you something about New York right now. Unpleasant. Yeah. Hot right? weather. Hot weather. Stinky garbage. Yeah. 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 Stinky garbage. People just like wandering into the street like some sort of piece of livestock, like trying to get killed by my bike. Yeah. I gave him the Jersey woe today, Stas. He would have loved it. La- lady walks. Okay, here's people. For those of you that don't know. By the way, we got Joe Hazen. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? Doing all right. And we got Jackie. We got a, wait, Jackie Molecules. You there? Yeah, maybe. He's probably muting himself. We have a special guest. I'll introduce him in one second. I'll say this one thing first. So I'm going down. And as you know, on the bike lanes here in New York, they're green. And in the bike lane, you're supposed to go as fast as possible because... I'm trying to get somewhere. It's just commuting, and it's a bike lane, right? Even though there's signs everywhere saying, restaurant, slow down, right? You know what I'm saying? You see, yeah. Anyway, but what you don't do is walk with your back to the oncoming bike traffic. If I see you do that, here's what I'm thinking. They're walking towards the cars, and then I'll pass them. Never turn back, never wander back into the bike lane. So this person, she wanders back into the bike lane, and Stas, you know what I gave her? What? Oh! <laughs> Not like ding, 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 because that wouldn't be sufficient. You know what I mean? I gave her the full... Oh, man. I gave her the full, the full experience. You yeah. know what I mean? The, yeah. The New York, New Jersey, major metropolitan area experience. Uh, that doesn't include Connecticut, though. Well, Connecticut's not really a land of O's. No. Do you consider... Really? Lo- what would they say? Nothing. Nothing. The Connecticut that's right next to New York is like freaking Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, oh. Excuse oh. me. You know what I mean? Like, whereas, like, everywhere else, you go out to Long Island, you go out to Jersey, you go anywhere, oh, God, you go to... Yeah. Oh! You know what I mean? Like, like, that's how we do it. Right? You know what I mean? Anyway. Uh, good news is that uh, we have today on the show a special guest who we were supposed to have uh, earlier, but we had to cancel because we were <clears throat> moving networks. Uh, and we didn't want him to get lost in the shuffle. Pierre, Pierre Chong, welcome to the show. Hey, Dave, thank you. Yeah. Thank well, you for having me. Well, it's been a long time coming. We've known each other since when? Since like 2009, and you've never been on the show, I don't think. Have you? I don't know. Actually, I have been on the show very long, a long time ago, briefly. Huh, you yeah. called, uh, we called, yeah, it was, I was on a special guest. I was just talking about fermented stuff. I remember that, yeah, because I, I love your show, yeah. Oh, well, I appreciate it. Well, you know, uh, we're all big fans, obviously, of uh, you. So let me give, give you a little bit of, like, uh, I guess, your background. Um, so, Pierre, I, knew, I first met you, like I said, in 2009 when I was working at the French Culinary Institute. You were coming in and using uh, our space because I guess, you know, you didn't want to take over your restaurant at the time because you were still had uh, the Grand Dakar at that time, I think. And... Uh-huh. Um, you were training for Iron Chef America, and that's kind of when uh, I, I met you. Is uh, you know we had a mutual friend, um, you know um, Hervé Maliver, who was our you know your second on the on the show, and uh, you came in and training, and we just kind of like you know became friends. And then you gave me a copy of your book Yolele, which was the very first Senegalese cookbook in English, at least here in the United States. It's the first one that I, I know of. It's, mm-hmm. It was crazy. If you look back in 2009, 
there was nothing. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was quite pioneering at the time. And, um, you know, I, it, this whole thing began for me in the early 90s when I arrived in New York. And, you know, New York was already calling itself the food capital of the world, but, but Africa was missing. Africa wasn't part of that world. And I was like, I saw this as an opportunity. Because yeah. I know, I mean, I came from Senegal and the food is awesome there. I mean, you've been there. Yeah, and, and you took me. great food culture. I took you there, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, we had a great trip. So, uh, you know, I was like, you know, I, I, this is an opportunity. I'm going to make it a mission to introduce this food culture. And in, I never stopped. And Yolele, that cookbook that you received was the very first one. It was part of a broader mission of introducing a food culture. Yeah, because there was, uh, at the time, right, in the 90s, there was like maybe one or two uh, West African restaurants on the west side. And then I guess uh, some up uh, it, like uh, above 116th Street, right, kind of in the middle of the island. And but like, where else was there? Where else was there? Where else were they? Like, what was going? Well, they weren't part of my food scene at the time because I was pretty Manhattan centric, like the idiot that I am. No, actually, I'm impressed that you knew about them. They were the, those were the very, very first one. When we first arrived, I arrived here in '89, actually. And when we first arrived, the only way we would have Senegalese food would be women would cook. We lived in a hotel, right? There was a, you know, quote-unquote hotel on 50th Street. Remember what Times Square looked like back in the days? Oh, yeah. So, so oh, yeah. that hotel was in the middle of Times Square. It was nothing like what you have right now. But those women had set up kitchen in those hotel rooms, and they would cook, like, for immigrants. And we would just come and grab our food to go, and we would grab our chebujan, our peanut sauce, our lamb stews, our okra stews, all those great things were cooked outside of hotel rooms. There was no restaurant. And then early 90s, the first restaurant started to come, you know, the ones you mentioned in the, in the West Side and one on 115th Street, and 116th Street became Little Senegal. Was, so that, uh, that's w- really how it started. Was uh, Shen Yanya Koti, was she Senegalese? She was Senegalese, yes. Shenyanya Koti, you remember her? She was in uh, in, uh, in around the mid, not mid packing, but um, in the garment forties behind. Yeah. Uh, exactly, exactly, right. I remember her. I lived she a block from that I restaurant. I lived a block from that restaurant, and we used to go. And that was the oh. first time like I had had any of that kind of food at all. And I was like, oh my god, what is this? You know what I mean? Like, what's going on? And I was very fortunate. <laughs> Because I don't know if you remember this, but right in that neighborhood, basically across the street from Shenyanya Koti was the only place, I guess, south of uh, Harlem in Manhattan where you could buy that kind of ingredient. But it was a, it was yep. a store for West African food run by Asians. By Koreans. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I remember that place. Wow, you're taking me back. That was Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. It was in Hell's Kitchen. And, uh, and yeah, those Koreans had all those funky flavors, you know, the, the fermented conch, the, the dried fish, you know, all those things were there. The, the, the locust beans, you know, the netetu, dawa dawa, all those things, that they, you could find it in that Korean place. It's a big Korean place, too. How did that and happen? all the Africans would just go there. I don't know. I still don't know. It's still a mystery. We talk about it between us immigrants, and we're like, wow, who are those guys and how... You know, but they just had a flair. They knew that, you know, there was a community and that community needed to have access to that, that, those ingredients. You know, those ingredients were so important for me particularly and many of my peers to stay in New York, you know, to endure the cold and all that harshness of New York. We had to have the good food of home. 
and and that's why that's why we would go by by any means to to make that food happen. And for me, it's really one of the reasons why I focused on on bringing that food culture to to my cuisine. You know, it's really for self-serving because I I, I miss those flavors. Thank God for those ingredients, those Koreans, though. <laughs> Thank God for them. They had a <laughs> well, well, let's uh, think about that for a second. Let's go back to Yolele, the first book in, in 2009, right? So as opposed mm-hmm. to then, like, your next book, at least the one that, uh, you know, I know of uh, is the, uh, the, the big you know, Senegal one, which was, when was that, in, in uh, 15 or something like this? You 2016, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, so, 2015. Mm-hmm. So then, and then just, you know, two years ago, you had the, the Phonio cookbook. So... That's right. In the Yolele book, you pretty much say you're not going to get, and, you know, I'd love for you to talk about, like, maybe, like, you know, some of these amazing fermented ingredients like uh, netatu, like gedge, like yet. So in Yolele, you're like, you're not going to find it. Use fish sauce. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you know what I mean? Uh, which in itself is interesting because you, t- you talk about the the Viet, you know, the group of Vietnamese culture that's in Senegal as well. But um, so it's kind of an interesting cross. Mm-hmm. But uh now, when you're writing recipes, like what in your mind has changed about writing a recipe for someone in the U.S. in terms of what they can get? Well, now I don't have to have all those stages for sourcing the ingredients because it's more accessible. I mean, personally, I've come up with, I created a company that brings those ingredients. And the goal is to be more accessible, to have like someone in Kansas City or in Missouri can get the ingredients now just by going to, 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 to our e-commerce platform. But those ingredients are more readily, readily available. Even at Whole Foods now, you get some of those ingredients. So it's, it's really interesting how 10 years span, so much has changed. And, and Africa is, is, is the new frontier, you know. People are more interested into those ingredients. And the, 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 the great thing is those ingredients are not only really bringing exotic flavor to your cuisine, but they're, they're nutritious as well. So that's really uh, what, what you get now, the difference between your Lele, my first cookbook, and, and my next cookbook, actually. I'm, I'm working on a, on, a, on a new cookbook with, uh, with, with Clarkson and Potter. We just signed a new deal. And uh, and the cookbook is going to be really everyday cooking, everyday African cooking, but for for, for American audience. So so it's it's really a, <laughs> a different world now. Yeah. So that's that's uh, that's really the the, the 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 fact. Well, I know also like uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but I know that you know for years part of your mission has been to expose America and bring some of these flavors and this culture here to America, but also to kind of reinvigorate the love of traditional foods back in your home, right? Mm-hmm. You want yes. to talk about that at yes, all? Or? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the, the fact uh, that we have this beautiful traditional cuisine that has been looked down upon by our own selves sometimes, particularly when it comes to the ingredients, and this is connected with colonial, colonization. You know, Senegal was colonized by the French, and, you know, colonization is, is, was a business. You know, the French came with a, a whole uh, politics for our agriculture, for instance. You know, and it's not only the French, but the British and every part of, of, of the world that was colonized. There was a, a, a system designed to, to really enrich the colonizer. So the, the, the agricultural system in Senegal, according to the French, to focus on, on growing peanuts. And for, for us to grow peanuts, we would have to, uh, to, to make sure peanuts became a cash crop for the farmers 
And the, since you don't eat peanut as a subsistence, we would have to import the grain. And the French went to Vietnam because Vietnam was also part of their colonial past. And they would bring the broken rice. And you know what broken rice is? Broken rice is the rice they breathe. The leftover of the rice, after the rice is processed, the leftover that the Vietnamese used to have for animal feed. So the French brought it to Senegal, and the Senegal embraced it. It became part of our national dish, you know, what we call chebujen, which is like a really flavorful, paella-looking dish. And that's, that's prepared with broken rice and imported broken rice at that. So we, you know, we have grains. We have our own rice. We have other amazing grains like fonio and millet and sorghum. But we prefer to bring that to, to consume that broken rice like we prefer to consume all the things that, are, that we're not producing because of that colonial mentality. You know, we prefer in Senegal, I don't know if you remember, but you can have baguette bread every, every street corner of Dakar. There's like a, a, a kiosk that sells fresh baguette, but we don't grow wheat. This is all part of the, the, the French colonial system. So even 60 years after independence, we are still deep in it. So my, what, part of my mission was to make sure we recognize and, and, and just bring back those crops that are not only our traditional crops, but that are much more nutritious for, for, uh, than the ones that we're importing. The broken rice has not much nutrition in it, for instance. Mm. And in addition, in doing so, we, we, we're supporting our, our economy, our, our farmers, our small farmers. We are supporting them because we are, uh, we are consuming what they are growing, and it's more adapted to our system. So this is part of the, 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 the mission, is to really bring back those traditional crops and those traditional recipes. I mean, because all, they, they're great for you and because they're delicious. Also, like I remember like the first thing that struck me is that as opposed to here in America, like there's such a range of different kinds of aged and fermented products that aren't – it's not like – I think most of the time in America we either eat something that's all the way, you know, strongly fermented or aged or, or, or completely fresh and nothing in between. And there's such a range – but I think you were telling me that a lot of those kind of cool, like, uh, well, these are very aged, but or you know, very fermented, but like gedge or like uh, netatu, which we can mm-hmm. talk about, were being replaced by kind of more industrial pl- products, like, uh, like, is it pronounced Maggie yeah. or Maggi the cube? I don't know. How do you- Maggi, Maggi. It depends what part of Senegal you are, but it's yeah. both 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 pronunciation are right, and and that abuse is so wrong. You know, Maggi has Maggi, whichever you want. Cube, cube magie, you know, so you say cube, the cube in French. The cube magie has replaced those those products, those amazing flavors, you know, those fermented netetu and, and gadgets. Because, um, you know, those products, they, they're strong. You know, sometimes people feel like, you know, it's the, 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 the strong, funky flavor um, is not really something they want to have in their kitchen or in their home. You know, they, they just prefer magie because... It, it it doesn't smell like that, but no, not realizing. But you know, when you cook the flavors, the the, the the stench is is fading into wonderful flavor. In addition to being very good for you, in addition to bringing so much umami to your cooking, uh, but but the magi is like um, you know being used and abused. You know, people are are using magi. I've seen people just crumbling magi cubes directly in their sauce, on their sauce, right before eating. You know, it becomes, you know, this, uh, it's an addiction even, you know, and and it's unfortunate because 
those companies are coming with so much a big marketing campaign. You have big billboards in Dakar, in all the streets of Senegal, just promoting those cubes and saying this is better than, you know, it's, it's more convenient than using, you know, fermented conch or, or dried gadget, dried fish or yet or all those things. So, so you know, and that same mentality keeps going. We think we, we are like uh, becoming modern by using those cubes that are you know, manufactured rather than using those traditional natural fermented ingredients, which are, you know, so much better in terms of cooking. As a chef, I know the difference when I cook with a yet or when I cook with Maggi, you know, it's like it's, it's like night and day, you know, yet or, or native to bring so much flavor, so much more natural flavor. So, you know, so that's, um, that's, that's the sad reality of modern times. People are just trying to cut corners and go fast and, and, and Maggi is like serving that. But, uh, but I'm, I'm really trying to, to, to work with your lady, my company, in bringing those flavors, bringing Dawa Dawa, for instance, we figure out a way to dehydrate Dawa Dawa and you just sprinkle it so it doesn't even have the, that, that, that strong, funky smell when you bring it into your, into your kitchen, you know, because Dawa Dawa is a locust bean, you know, it's a locust bean from a tree of fruit. And the seed of that fruit is is fermented, so it's like it it it's, it becomes wet and and really, I mean it, it has a strong smell. That's for, so that's that's true. But if you dehydrate it, that smell tends to go away. So this is what we're doing. We're coming with ingenious way of like bringing the flavors without having the the, the inconvenience of of the smell of dawa dawa. Well, I have so but do it's you so much better than cube. So you you're selling it. You think more Americans are going to know it? Because I only know it the way you taught me is netetu. But it's also Dawa Dawa, mm-hmm. and then also in what's it in Nigeria? It's uh, yeah, yeah, Iru and Dawa Dawa. Both are Nigerian. Yeah, and uh, and and uh, Sumbala in Mali and Guinea, and Netetu in Senegal. So so since Nigerians are almost a quarter billion people on the planet, so Dawa <laughs> Dawa is the name that's more popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have some of the of your stuff here, and I don't. Have, do you guys? Have you guys used it? The guys in the studio here, John and Nastasia and and Joe, have you used uh, Netatu or Dawa Dawa before? No. Nope. Nope. All right. So it is true. So like you know, when Pierre nope. first uh, gave it to me, uh, you know, showed me in the markets in Senegal, it comes in like a ball, right, Pierre? Like in a, it's like a yeah, or or exactly. like or, or little pucks or a ball chunks. And so mm-hmm. it's true that this dehydrated. So what I did was is I have his dehydrated powder here, and then I just put some in oil. In uh, in my uh, yeah. kitchen and toasted it in the pan to, and when you toast it, very like in in oil when you, you fry it a little bit, you get all of these aromas of like uh, meat and cheese uh, and savory. But then it, it it goes into like a much more mellow, I would say nutty savory kind of a note. When you say so, here you guys are gonna smell the raw, and maybe if you like put a little water, you can smell what it smells like when it rehydrates. But that's not going to, as Pierre says, not that I'm worried about my kitchen getting stunk up, but that's not going to stink up your kitchen. Uh, but then mm-hmm. um, smell the, this one once it's cooked. See the difference. John is smelling them. Oh, that's really nice. Super nutty. Yeah, it gets very nutty. Nutty. Do you even notice, John, mm. the slight chocolate flavor? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Take a great whiff. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just an amazing product. And like Amazing product, in right? in rices, in stews, and it doesn't have to be yes. e- even in with African flavors. It works well with uh, with American oh. flavors, you know, like uh, with with any to- any tomato based stew, right, Pierre? Like, um, uh-huh. yep, yep. Uh, 
can make a nice tomato sauce, like even a pasta sauce, and you'll bring a whole other new dimension to your the layers of flavor that you will get. Something that you know you you cannot fail to notice, but it's pleasant. It's really really pleasant. Like I said, I mean, it's umami. I've even, I've even used it in cream-based, uh, I mean, I, you know, again, like I'm not a traditionalist in any sort of anywhere, uh, but it's like, <laughs> you know, like uh, it's really good. But again, like when you put it in, it's going to volatilize in your kitchen. Your kitchen's going to fill with the aroma of netatu, but then mm-hmm. as it's flashing off, your the dish itself is becoming more, like I say, more savory and more nutty. And once, you, once you're used to cooking with it, the smell of it cooking is... Is the is the indication that in the future you're going to get that delicious taste? So then you also like the smell, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, yep. You know, it's kind of, kind of like once you're used to cooking with fish sauce or something like this. You know. That's correct. That's correct. I, I like how you describe it because because you know this this is really true. You know, now I can walk by a home that's using dawa dawa when they're cooking it. And I'm I'm like already starting to salivate. It's kind of like a, <laughs> like a reaction because I know the the sm- the taste that's going to come after. You know, just that smell in that kitchen can just trigger something in my in my uh, in, in my taste buds. <laughs> so I can I can see what's coming up. So is this one available yet, the Dawa Dawa or no? The Dawa Dawa is available soon, very very soon. It's actually at, at Woodlands right now. We found a sourcing. Uh, we bring in Dawa Dawa from Burkina Faso at the moment and from Ghana. So it will be available very soon. Uh, check out yolele.com and, and uh, that's one of our upcoming ingredients. But we already have it in one of, in a couple of our products. You know, in, in uh, our Fonio Pilaf, we have Dawa Dawa. We have the Afro Funk, which is the name of one of our Pilaf, Afro Funk, because the funk aspect of Dawa Dawa. And we also have our Fonio chips now. I don't know if I told you, we just launched chips in the market. Oh, and, no. uh, and one of them, yeah, we just launched four flavors of chips. You know, we have the salt chips, we have the green that have moringa in it. We have uh, the the sea salt I mentioned. We have the apple funk with a, which is dawa dawa in it. So, so, so it's a really nice and crispy. It has a nice crispy texture. You know, Fonio has really an interesting texture when you turn it into chips. Um, it tastes crisp, but it's sturdy enough that you can use it to dip a sauce or a salsa. And the one with dawa dawa is just amazing. I make some nacho with it. I have a couple of nacho recipes in the atyolele.com. If you go to the the website, you'll see you know you see the chips. You can get the chips on the website soon. You can get the chips at Whole Foods and and at Target as well. So it's um it's uh it's on the process, and mm. that you can get the dawa dawa flavor in it. Yeah, don't go with just Whole Foods. You gotta diversify. As we know, we just got mutilated by not diversifying. It's the worst. Well, actually, I'm glad you. S- talked about this because the the reason we just were like oh we need to get pierre on isn't because you know i love your books and your and your cooking which i do it's because you started this business and a lot of our listeners are interested in starting a, a food business and i know it's really hard uh and you've been you were working on it for maybe even four or five years before you launched you were talking about fonio back in 2013 you were already connecting with farmers and all this other stuff and then in in 2017, you started this business, Yolele, to bring these foods to the United States. And that's got to be an incredibly complicated thing. And so we just wanted to have you on to kind of talk about that process for people that are interested. Yeah, yeah. Like you you said, you you were there when I started uh, being interested in bringing the ingredients. It was even before 2013, you know, 
earlier, if you if you notice in my first cookbook, I talk about fonio already, and I talk about those ingredients, and that's you know it all happened organically really. Um, again, when I first arrived in New York City, African food was missing, and I saw it as an opportunity. So I started the catering business that became my first restaurant. My very first restaurant was before back in the Grand Dakar actually. It was called Yolele. It was in Besta, in an area where nothing existed, really. There was not rest, no restaurant, let alone a sit-down African bistro. So that restaurant turned into another restaurant. And then I noticed, as I was writing my cookbooks, I noticed another opportunity was the readers didn't have access to the ingredients. You know, so I wanted it to be another way to, to bring those ingredients. This was also another way to continue a broader um, mission of bringing this food culture. So... I'm like, if I'm going to bring the ingredients to the readers, I should do it in a way that's not only sustainable, but that really supports the small farming communities that are growing those ingredients. Because those communities, they don't have markets for those ingredients. You know, like um, the Dawa Dawa, for instance, the market was very limited, but even worse for Fonio, because the grains like Fonio, the market was just for the subsistence of the farmers. It was just for the locals. You know, you would go even to cities like Dakar or Abidjan or Lagos, you would have problems finding fonio. You know, you would find easily, like I mentioned, you'd find wheat that we don't grow. You'd find baguette bread that we don't grow. You'd find, you know, imported broken rice and things of that sort that our own grain didn't have markets. So the, the goal for me really was to figure out a way to bring markets to those small farming community in a way to bring economic prosperity or opportunities to those regions. Because if you go to those regions, you realize one thing is the poverty. You know, the poverty in rural Africa is, 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 is just so, so vast. One thing you notice is most of the men are gone. They're, trying to, they're migrating. They're trying to get to Europe for looking for opportunities, looking for work. There's no work there, and they cannot make a dignified living from the farming that they're doing. So that's the reason for Yolele, to figure out a way to bring economic opportunities by opening markets for their products, because they have amazing products. I mean, you take talk about Fonio. I, I told you so much about Fonio, but Fonio is this amazing grain. It's resilient. It's been around 5,000 years. It's gluten-free. It's very, very nutritious. But in addition to that, it's great for the environment. It's a grain that grows in poor soil and that restores the soil because it has deep roots that regenerates the soil, that adds nutrients to the soil. It's a grain that's drought-resistant, which is very important now. We're having a water crisis, you know, especially with the climate change, that, uh, that crisis that we are facing. You know, it's important to, to think about grain crops like fonio. So that was the idea. For Fonio, for me, was the grain that was checking all the boxes. Well, and so for those I people who don't there. know, like Fonio yeah. is a tiny, tiny, tiny millet. It's like a very special, yeah. very old, tiny millet. You know, is that we say it's yeah. accurate? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, yeah. It's, uh, it's from the millet family. Absolutely. It's uh, it scores very low on the glycemic index, so it's recommended for people with diabetes. Back home, that's what they give to people with diabetes. And it's, it's rich in two amino acids that are deficient in most major grains. Those are cysteine and methionine, you know, and they're very important for human growth. So there's so much going on for Fonio. It's very rich in fiber, for instance. So, so uh, what I was thinking 
very naively though at the time I was like, oh, I'm gonna turn this local unknown grain into a world class crop. It was like very naive, but you no, know, that really kept me uh, seeing a bigger picture. It's like this grain can transform this rural Africa. This grain can really turn these farmers into importers, you know, like and and really have them just change the situation, the economic situation at least. So that was really the ambition without knowing that there was going to be so many challenges. I had to create a chain of value that would go from the farmers all the way to the, the shelves of the supermarkets in America, you know, and in, in Africa, obviously, you know, because the goal was really to turn it into a global crop. Back home in Africa, in America, now we are even starting to distribute in Europe. So that was the goal. So, you know, it started with a dream. But, you know, how do I do it now? <laughs> that was the, 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 the question I'm sure many of your audience are, are, are wondering. So, you know, I, I, I thought the best way was to have the right team. You know, first, part, first thing I did, I partnered with uh, my, my co-founder, actually. His name is Philip Tevro, and he's also a veteran in the food industry. He's been around way back in the, back in the days when they were starting to bring quinoa in America, like I'm talking about like 20 plus years ago. And, you know, I, I, I liked his experience and I also liked the fact that we didn't want Fonio to be a quinoa story. You want to wanted, tell the story of, of why quinoa was problematic for those that weren't keeping up with the whole quinoa nightmare? Yes, yes. So quinoa, the, the quinoa became this grain that became quickly very popular. So quinoa, that's, that's, it's a grain that's produced in Latin America, in the Andes, you know, Chile, Peru, that area. And it was it's an ancient grain, just like Fonio. Quinoa has been around 3,000 years. Fonio actually has been around 5,000 years. And for, for a big part of those 3,000 years, it was just consumed by those people in those regions. And then it got discovered by, by the consumers, global consumers. And it be, there was a boom around quinoa. And that was the problem, because when there was a boom, the supply wasn't there, you know. So a boom is always followed by the bust. You know, that's really the law of the market. That's nature, right? Yeah. And, so well, that, and, and the locals what, couldn't afford to buy their own product anymore, right? You had people, local and, people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, because, the, because there was a boom. The demand, people were coming from all over to buy the quinoa. And the farmers were like, oh, okay, so you, you want it so bad. You know, the prices were going all over the place and the locals couldn't afford it because, you know, there were dollars coming to buy it. So, you know, the pesos couldn't <laughs> compete with it. So this is what happened. And this is what we didn't want for Fonio. We didn't want a boom for Fonio. We wanted to make sure as Yolele is growing and bringing Fonio and Fonio is becoming more popular, we wanted to make sure the supply is there. We wanted to make sure we support the farmers. You know, it's important. You know, it has to be the design has to to be to to make sense. You know, and and it makes sense if you put the farmers and the environment as a priority. You know, and then you know it the, the chain goes all the way to the to, to the to the shelves of the supermarket. But the farmers have to be able to produce for you. So what we realize is by at the, at the supply side, you know, like I said, Fonio grows in poor soil, you know. There's a nickname for Fonio. They call it the lazy farmer's crop. Why? Because it's so easy to grow. You know, all you need to do is to throw the seeds when the first rain comes, and you're guaranteed to have a harvest of Fonio, regardless of how the season of rain comes or not. You don't need to till the soil. 
You don't need to do much work. You don't need any uh, fertilizers. You don't need any any pesticides or anything. Fonio is so sturdy and resilient. So we we thought we, the challenge with Fonio though was in the processing. You know, like uh, Dave, you mentioned, it's a tiny, tiny type of millet. It's a tiny grain, and each grain is covered with a skin that's inedible. So you have to remove that skin before Fonio becomes food. And the farmers were spending so much time to process it. First, they were using a, a, a pestle, you know, modern pestle, which would take two hours just to process one kilo of Fonio. <sighs> so it was really, really long and tedious process. Then uh, Nastasia is here shaking her head saying she's not going to do it. She's like, well, I'm not doing it. We would do. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Nastasia, you don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> you don't have to do it. You, 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 you go to you go to you go to yalele.com and, and the phone comes cleaned up for you. Okay. But but what what we realized, you know, is not only that process was taking so long, but the waste in that process, during that process, even when the, the, the processing started to become mechanized, you know, there was some a machine that came up that was processing for you locally, you know, but it still was a long, and the waste was, was, was amazing. It was almost 50% of waste, Oof. which was crazy. So we realized that we needed to focus into the processing aspect and into research as well. So we, we worked with researchers, local researchers in, 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 in Senegal, in Mali, in collaboration with um, um, Cornell University here, and just to improve the agriculture of Fonio. And, and so, something that we came up with was just growing, realized that just growing Fonio in raw can almost double the production, the, the, the yield of Fonio. Because before, like I said, Fonio was just dispatched. You just, just throw it when you grow it. You just throw the seed and, and then anywhere on the field, then it's going to grow. But if you grow it, in, plant it in row, you can have a higher yield, almost double. And another way is if you perfect, if you have a better way of processing it, which, what, which is what we did. We're working with um, local uh, industrials to bring a mill that will process for you at one ton, at three tons per hour. So it's like we're going to have a, a close to 100 ton a week of fonio now. That's good. And that's processed with, and without, without the waste, without the 50% so, waste. So, so the now, limit on growing the was the, is double. the limit on growing was the limit on processing, not the limit on the land. Exactly, exactly. The land is plentiful. You know, you know where the land is? Fonio grows in an area called the Sahel, which is south of the Sahara. There's plenty of land. You know, the land is like dry and arid, not much growth, but Fonio can thrive in that area. So there's plenty of land. All the farmers need to focus on now is to keep growing Fonio on that land. And what they do, not only they grow Fonio on that land, but we encourage them to do it the traditional way, which is growing in rotation. You know, they would grow fonio in one season, and then they would grow another crop that's called bambara bean, which is also a crop that adds nitrogen to the soil and that allows the soil to be ready for the next fonio uh, season. So it's really the way, a way to not only enrich the soil, respect the soil, really, the environment, but it, 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 it slows the advance of the desert. Because we want to do that in addition to planting certain type of trees. Those trees are called acacia. Yeah. That they also add they also add um, nutrition to the nutrients to the soil. Do, and, do and, you plant and, the and, ones and, that and, you can get uh, the gum out of, or no? 
Yes, absolutely. Those are the ones, the local ones. So, so you, you, great question that you just asked. So the communities, the local communities, they, they have different ways of bringing uh, income into their, 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 their communities. Because the acacia, you can get gums and can get income from the gum, the Arabic gum. It's a, there's a, it's a big business out of that. And then you have the fonio, and then you have the, the bambara beans. The bambara beans is another interesting crop. It's an ancient crop that looks like, like peanuts. It tastes like peanuts, but it doesn't have the allergens of peanuts. And it got replaced by peanuts because peanuts were so much easier to process. And that's what happened, you know, with, with modern time. We're looking for the, the shortcuts, and, we, and, and those grains started to disappear. The bambara beans started to disappear. You only see it locally. So the goal with Yolele is to bring back that, 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 that crop, bambara beans, and, and open a market for that, just like what we did with Fonio. But and it, in doing so, we're doing... Hmm? Go it, ahead. In West Africa, when they say groundnut, they mean peanut. They don't mean this other one, do they? Or do they mean this other one? Well, well, it was this other one first, but now it, it became peanuts because peanuts is the one that you see everywhere now. Mm. But it was groundnut, it was bambara beans. That's what it was. Can you roast them the that's, same way you roast really, a peanut? You can roast them, you can boil them, you can turn them into milk. You can, you know, you can do so much. The same thing you do with peanuts. The difference is the, the shell is harder. You have to crack the shell. I love you know, it. I love like the way you do is. Oh, boiled peanuts is the best. Yeah. It's the best. I love boiled peanuts. I grew up eating. My parents are from the south of Senegal, Casamas. Over there, that's what, how we eat peanuts. We boil it. And, and then when I saw that they were boiling peanuts in southern America, in, in, in southern food as well, I was like, wow. You know, you make the connections, obviously. You know, there's Middle Passage. There's so much food that came from, from West Africa to, to, like, New Orleans and Louisiana and Carolinas. So boiled peanuts land, that's why that's where you see it there. So it's, it's coming from Casamas. I yeah. love it. Well, I got to get some questions in before we run out of time. Although I do, it, the one bad thing about switching to this new, better production system that you have is you no longer have the motto, you throw it and you grow it, which is a great motto to tell any farmer. Yes, right? true. You throw it and you grow it. That's it. You know what I mean? Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's that that model is still gonna stay. You know, it's just that there's there's gotta be making sure the, the the production is increasing as the demand is increasing. Otherwise, we have another quinoa story. And the sad thing, when you have another quinoa story, not only the locals cannot get the quinoa, but the quinoa is being grown in other parts of the world because the the demand has is, is still increasing. So now you have quinoa grown in Ukraine, in Texas, in Montana, and and this is something we're also trying to. To, to protect, we want to protect the name Fonio on a regional level so that its appellation is going to be just for that region of origin. You know, just like you, we do, they do in France with, with Champagne and, and in Italy in, with their wines and all that. So that's what we're working on right now with DFO. Well, and I guess there's, there's, a, there's precedence for that with, with different varieties of rice, right? Like you can't grow, can you, right? I don't know. I think yeah, there are. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there's a, you know, like a, the Basmati and, and they, 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 the Indians at certain parts have their own, but if you call it, if you have it here, you have to have a slightly different name, but it's not the same rice. You know, you cannot call it that rice, that, that variety. There's a few, few other crops like that. So, you know, we, we have a model to use. 
All right, Darren asks, Darren Van Groff asks, is anyone making a Fonio Millet beer that is available in the U.S.? I've had uh, some home-brewed uh, Burkinabe version called Dolo, but never seen anything like it in the U.S. Now, I know that you were working with Brooklyn, with Garrett, uh, and they did a couple of batches, but did it ever, is it, is it ever going to happen commercially or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to happen commercially. That beer is absolutely delicious. Garrett Oliver from uh, Brooklyn Beer approached me when he knew about uh, what I was doing with Fonio. And, uh, you know, he approached me in that same spirit. His idea was, if you turn it into a beer, there's going to be so much Fonio used for that. And that's going to support the small farming communities where the Fonio is coming from. And we said, absolutely. So it started with a good idea. And then he imported a few tons of Fonio to do his testing. And then it turned out that Fonio beer was a amazing tasting beer. Garrett was so excited. He was like, wow. You know, I mean, I thought I was just doing a good action, but it's like an amazing beer. And we tasted it and we started passing it around. And everyone at Brooklyn Brewery was so excited. And uh, so so we were launching it. You know, we had even a name, Taranga, for the beer. And we were launching it in uh, when, when when the pandemic hit. Yeah. So um, the biggest the biggest distribution was in the bars and and and, and restaurants. So we, we put a stop on it, but they started they started distributing it even in Japan because you know Brooklyn Brewery is is uh, owned by a bigger brewery, Japanese brewery. So it's like um, it's, it's distributed in Japan, and this and he's very excited. We we recently got a big order of Fonio again from Brooklyn Brewery. The, the, it's going on. It's really going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I've ha- I've had it. It's good. You, uh, we had it at the Mofad fundraiser once. Right. That's right. Yes, there we go. That's right. That's right. How'd you like it? I thought it was delicious. Um, everyone liked it. Um, now that's different from in your, I forget which book, whether it's the Fonio book or the Senegal book. You have a recipe for Fonio uh-huh. beer, but that's more of like a, a home a home beer where it's yeah. like sugar and Fonio, not like what they're doing at Brooklyn. That's right, different. That's the one Darren is talking about, uh, the, 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 the the guy who asked the question. Yeah. Because he had it in Burkina Faso. You know, in Burkina Faso, it's Dolo. They call it Dolo. And we, yeah, he's right. It's made with Fonio for the most part. It's, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's beer technically, but it's not the beer that you would have in, you know, in, in the market here. You know, first of all, it's really usually drank at room temperature, very warm. And it knocks you out for real. <laughs> it knocks you out, but it's it's a it's a dolo. It's a you know you get you get addicted to it though. If you like it, you know it's a it's a great it's a great beer. You see it everywhere, not only in Burkina Faso, all the way to Zimbabwe. You have like the, this kind of grain beer that uh, that are popular in Africa. Well, if you ever uh, if we ever work out and get to go back, you'll you'll get me to try some. I still does your guy is your is your coconut wine guy still alive or no? Which one? The- <laughs> The coconut wine guy in Casamance, is he still alive or is oh, he dead? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I it's a good question. I think he's still alive. He was in very good health. I haven't been. I was in Casamance recently, just uh, last month, actually, but just for a day. You know, I was in Dakar to, to change the menu at the Pullman Hotel. That I'm the signature chef there. And I went to Casamance for a brief visit. I didn't get to the village. No, I, but I, I think he's... You know, he he looks great, so I think he's still alive. That guy has, like, a, a, a great shape and great diet, so I don't think uh, I don't think COVID got to him. I mean, he was climbing trees when he was 80, you said, right? I mean, he's a... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Yusef travel. I you, think you're still climbing trees. Well, I mean, let's hope. I mean, some like you know, one of these days, I'm going to get to go there in February and see the the rice harvest uh, someday. Yeah. Before I'm dead, maybe we'll see. Yusef uh, Travali wrote in uh, wants to know Pierre how you switched from math and physics to becoming a chef. <laughs> well, and that's another that's a, another story. But um, but yeah, I studied as a math and physics student. Actually, I was at Dakar University. And uh, and from Dakar University, you know, late 80s, we were very political, you know, especially in Senegal. There was a lot of student unrest, and and I was part of that <laughs> that uh, that system. The students we were on strike. We went on on strike for so long that that year the government decided to shut down the school system because we had so many days of strike and we had to start all over. And this is really how everything started for me. That's how I got a student visa to come to the U.S. I was on my way to just finishing my degrees in physics and chemistry. I was on my way to Ohio, out of all places, you know. And, and, and I stopped by New York because, um, you know, I had a friend who lived in New York. And, and I, I was like, everyone wants to see New York at least once, you know, before you die. So that was my thing. I'm like, going to stop by New York and be here for one week, two weeks, and then go to Ohio and just uh, stay there and do my studies. And when I arrived in New York, remember I mentioned Times Square? That's where we stayed, Times Square. In that in the 80s, Times Square was like crack Eesh. epidemic and, and yeah. AIDS. And it was it was crazy, crazy, and, and all those pawn shops and all the... Yeah, so watch, watch the deuce. It was, it was really like that, watch the deuce. <laughs> I mean, I started going in the 70s and went all through the 80s. You know, I was mugged in Times Square, whole nine, whole thing. Uh, you know, I, I had the, the legitimate... <laughs> so we got the similar experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was robbed three days after I arrived in New York. I was robbed, but I was, you know, that robbing was a blessing. I lost everything, <laughs> my, my money, my... <laughs> it was crazy, crazy. But uh, that's when I realized, you know, I was stuck. I still had my return ticket, and I was very tempted to return to Senegal. This country was crazy. I'm like, well, I get robbed. These guys are like, I mean, I see zombies walking down the street. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, it was crazy. And nothing, you know, what I expected, you know, because I, you know, before coming, you have an idea of the United States and New York and, you know, the music, you know, the Jacksons and all that. So, and then you hear and you have like, wow, you know, so I get robbed and I'm like, I'm returning to New York, to Senegal. But a friend of mine, he was working in a restaurant. I don't know if you remember, there's a restaurant in the West Village called Garvin's. Mm. So uh, near, near uh, on Waverly Place. So, so, so he was working at that restaurant. And he was like, oh, they're looking for a busboy. You know, you can come and make a little extra money, you know, before uh, deciding, returning to Senegal, at least you have some money or, or whatever you want to do. And I, and I go to that restaurant and this is how, you know, I, not only from busing, I had my first cultural shock, you know, in that kitchen. There were only guys in that kitchen. And I come from a culture where there were only women in the kitchen. And I'm like, wow, who are these guys? <laughs> what are they doing in the kitchen? It was really funny. But the chef became a friend of mine because, you know, he was he thought I was really into what he was doing. But I was just checking those guys out, cooking these amazing things, you know, that looked like my mom's cookbook. My mom had a, a, a collection of cookbooks and the pictures I used to love them looking at those pictures, and now I'm like in these restaurants, and the pictures look like my mom's cookbooks, and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This and they guys, you know. So the chef, like the chef, had studied in France, Billy, and he wanted to practice his French with me, and he's like, you know, you can take extra shifts since you want to make extra money. Take extra shifts, and you come in the in the kitchen as a dishwasher, and when you finish your bus busing 
shift, you know, and you come in a dishwasher and you, you learn gradually, you know, it's like that's how I learn, you know, you learn from the bottom up and that's how I did. I learned from the bottom up and, you know, after, you know, a few months of dishwashing, I was already peeling vegetables because the, you know, prep guy didn't show up. So they start, they start to teach you how to peel vegetables and onions and then gradually you learn your knife skills and then next thing you know, you're in the Gardomarge station and then you realize that, hey, this is all chemistry, you know, especially when you're in the Gardomarge station and you see the, 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 the sauces, you know, the, the, the vinaigrette is really an emulsion that you've learned in chemistry. It's like acid and lipid being an emulsion, you know, and, and then if you pay more attention, every single thing in the kitchen is really a chemical reaction. Cooking is chemistry, really, and, and, and a, a type of chemistry that I loved so much more than the one I had when I was doing math and physics, and actually it was, I was a student in physics and chemistry, not in math and physics, but, uh, but that's the kind of, uh, of, of, of chemistry I liked so much, you know, immediate gratification. You like, you cook it, you taste it, you know, you go to that lab and you taste it and it's delicious and you can share it with other people. So I really got the bug and I, I never looked back. I and started to read as much as I could and, and over the years worked from that restaurant, climbed my way up in that restaurant and then went from that restaurant to working to Italian restaurant and then French Bistro opened Jean-Claude in Soho. From there, I went on to open Boom. You know, Boom was another restaurant that really changed everything for me because that was focusing on global ethnic and the chef was bringing inspirations from Southeast Asia. And that's really when I was like, Wow, these flavors, you know, fermentation and all that, that kind of takes me back to Senegal, you know, because Senegal, you know, we have that the same fermentation culture and the grains were there. Plus, we have this Vietnamese community, which I was connected with already in Senegal through their food. And that was, you know, when I thought, you know, why is not, is there not any Senegalese food here? And, and that restaurant was so successful, boom, that I got, they opened a new place. And I was promoted as a chef de cuisine in that place. And I started to offer those flavors of my childhood. It was really flavors from memory. And, and, you know, and that's a long way to say, you know, to explain how I turned from physics and chemistry to, <laughs> to cooking. But I, I can go on and on. But that's, this is the whole story. That's so old school. I, I with being, so you never made it to Ohio? Up. You didn't go to Ohio? <laughs> never, made, never made it to Ohio. And I heard I didn't miss much. <laughs> so, but, but, <laughs> No offense. No offense, Ohio. No offense. So let me just. No, sorry, Ohio. Let me add the. me, like, ask a a follow up on that. So then, did you, because you didn't cook growing up, did you go back Uh and then hang out with your family to to get the, like, the Senegalese cooking? Or, like, what, how did that work? Yeah, absolutely. It started with my mom, first of all, when I had to tell, finally tell my parents that I was not actually going to school and all this time I've been in the kitchen. You know, that was the, 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 the thing. I was so nervous telling them because, first of all, you know, they, they expected you to, to to get your degree and, and become an engineer, and now you're in the kitchen. And I'm like, in the kitchen, they're probably not, never going to respect that because in Senegal, the men, men are not in the kitchen. You know, and, and I was shocked. My mom was so supportive. And she started talking cooking with me, you know, immediately. She was like, on the phone, you know, like, you know, we would, I would just get inspiration asking her for recipes from, you know, remembering recipes, um, the food that I would eat from her. And she would give me the recipes. I would write them down and test them and adapting them to the, the kitchen, you know, the, 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 the modern kitchen. And, and then 
you know, I realized it was time for me to go on a pilgrimage. And I went on a couple of pilgrimages, and they really wanted to spend time with the women because they are the ones who are the who had the secret. So I would spend time with my mom, my aunt. I would go all the way to the village, the grandmas and the, the distant cousins and stuff. And if you see my first book, Yolele, you notice that there was every now and then there are pictures and portraits of women of my family. Those are the women I spent time with. And I wanted the book to be a tribute to them and really assure them to be a tribute to, to women of Africa, really, because that's a continent where women are cooking and they are the ones who kept that tradition from generation to generation, just passing it on to their daughters who will pass them to pass it on to their daughters. And, and I'm the guy who, who got here and, and luckily, you know, I, I got, I got that knowledge through them and I took it to the international level, but that really was without them, none of this would happen. So I really wanted the, the book to be about that. And I, I kept, you know, traveling to Africa, not only Senegal, but the other parts of Africa. And I knew that I wanted to hang out with the women and go in their kitchen and go to the markets. The first thing I would do, go to the market, taste the food, and then, you know, and then go to spend time with women. And that's really my, my, my formation. You know, it starts with the memory, the food that I loved eating as I was a kid. And then tracing it back and just having them reveal the secrets gradually and those secrets I would write them down and and at, the, at, at some point I realized that I had so many recipes that I could produce a book and that's what became my very first cookbook but all, all your all your uh, all your cookbooks photography is beautiful Adam Bartos is your photographer does a great job they look great you know what I mean all the books look great yeah, I've been very fortunate. I've worked with amazing photographers. Adam Bartos is a world-class photographer, and he, he, he jumped on the opportunity. I told him, you know, let's go to Senegal, and he, he, he came with me, and we traveled around, and he had the time of his life. Senegal, too. I worked with Evan Song, Evan Song, who's working on my next cookbook as well. So uh, Evan Song works on two cookbooks with me, and Adam Bartos also worked on two cookbooks. So he worked on the Ponyo cookbook as yeah. well. Yeah, which, by so, the way, at, know, the, at I, the end, I, I, you have all the pi- the pictures of the producers, 75%, 80% yeah. are women. Exactly, exactly, because Ponyo is a, is, a, is a women crop. They like to call it the women crop. You know, women played a, such a big role in, in preserving our, our tradition and our culture. And, and and Fonio is one of them, you know. The cooking is definitely one of them. They pass it on and on and on, and that's how this this, this food is accessible to us now. But without them, you know, without that that tradition of like just making sure your daughters know how to cook because she's going to be cooking for her family, and then she's going to make sure her daughters know how to cook. And what she learned is the thing that she has been this ancient ancient recipes that been being passed on from generation to generation. And that's how you see certain recipes that you see here. You see gumbo in, 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 in New Orleans. It's because those women came here too and they knew how to cook it. The same gumbo recipe, you have it in Senegal. It's the same okra, seafood, everything. The rice, the way we cook rice, jollof rice, you see it in all the form that becomes jambalaya. You know, that's just because those traditions were kept and passed on from generation. So it transcends time and borders and and it's really the amazing food thing about food you know because you want to bring your food everywhere you go and we're running out of time we've got a couple questions we got to get to for you that i don't want to miss uh joshua coon mm-hmm. wrote in now joshua coon's a big uh hunter in like the western part of the u.s in the northwest not northwest like oregon like northwest like montana that kind of dakotas that kind of thing 
He, he asks, mm-hmm. despite the poaching and illegal trade problems, has Senegal been able to hold on to a culture of subsistence hunting? If so, which animals and how are they traditionally prepared? Yes, yes. Uh, it's very, very limited, unfortunately, because, uh, um, yeah, the, the poaching has been, has been there and the animals are, are disappearing. But now you, have, you still have hunting and mostly is um, um, gazelles, you see that in South in South Senegal, in Casamas, in and in, in Kedugu, that area, and so it's it's game, you know, like you, most mostly gazelles. You have porcupines, you know, that's something that's also being hunted. You have um, it's, it's sadly, you know, but the the, the last uh, parts of of where you see lions have been, you know, they they've been disappearing because of the the hunting as well. So. So that that part is, is 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 illegal, but it's still happening. It's still still happening for for different reasons. But uh, most of the things is gazelles. You know, you have gazelles, and 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 you know, it's kind of a deer-like uh, animal that you see in Senegal. Uh, how and do you, you have hogs as well. How do you prepare a porcupine? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to <laughs> make sure you, you 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 clean the skin well. You take out the the, the spikes, and and then usually it's a stew. You know, it's a stew like. And it, it has a it has a pleasant but very you know gamey uh, tasting even smell when you cook it. But it, as, as a stew, it's, it's a delicacy. People love it. Those people who, if you're lucky to get onto on a, on a porcupine, you know, it's a delicacy. Huh. And, you, and and that's that. Yeah. And you also have a, obviously the small ones too. The the rabbits. There's one. Uh, they call it rapalmist, and it's it's a it's it's not a rat, you know. It's not a rat from like the one you see in New York. It's a it's a bush rat, you know. And uh, it's it 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 it, sort of, it eats herbs and grass. It, it's a vegetarian, obviously, and it's uh, it's very popular in in certain parts of Senegal as well. Does it taste and, like uh, squirrel? Being hunted. It tastes like squirrel. I guess you know. I never had squirrel, but I guess it tastes like squirrel. It kind of looks like squirrel in size. Sometimes it can be a little bigger even, but um, but it's also gamey. Uh, and sometimes they smoke it, you know, before cooking it. So it's smoked like in a wood fire, and then you have the smoke, and that's even before skinning it, and then you skin it, and then that, you know, the smoking part allows it to travel. So it's it's it's, it's dried up. It doesn't it doesn't rot anymore. So it it, it can travel long distances. Wait, so they smoke it till it's dry, and then rehydrate it in a stew? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I think I've seen that before. Did, did they used to import any of that illegally into that store that I used to go to? It, yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. That store amazed me. They had, like, everything. I mean, really everything you may need for West African cooking, you would go to that Korean store. Yeah, I wish and, we were still there. Thank God for them. They allowed us to, to stay alive, you know. Many of us would have left. New York, if he didn't have access to those, that food, <laughs> so they, they were great. And it had a random name, the International Grocery. Anyway. Uh, That's right. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Isabel- hey Dave, Josh, Josh, Josh in the chat says he's eaten porcupine, braised it, and would describe the taste as musty but good. Musty but good. So, like, mu- good. Must, musty like beaver tail? Anyway. Uh, yeah. Isabella de Julio wrote in, uh, hey, uh, for Senegalese food, uh, what's Pierre's favorite way to use uh, netatu slash uh, dawa dawa and fonio also? I've been making porridge from it, and it's delicious. I want to ask about the ferments he has tried or would like to try making at home from Senegal. Mm. 
So, uh, uh, is she in Senegal? She said. Well, no, so no, no. She's the, asked, the, she's the, asking the, about like uh, Senegalese things to do. That your favorite things to do with uh, with those things that maybe like with a with a accent on fermented products. Oh, okay. So, so Netetu, what 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 I like to do, and that's what we do traditionally. You know, you you can rehydrate it, right? The dried one by simply you know taking onions. You know, you 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 you. you you use the mortar and pestle. You can, if you don't have that, you can just blend it all together. The netetu and onions and garlic. You can add ginger if you want, and you blend it together. And you add salt. Some people like to add chili, so you can add cayenne pepper. You can add a scotch bonnet if you really like it spicy. But you can even add the scotch bonnet without putting the seeds in it. And you blend it into a paste, and that paste becomes, you know, you can shape it into bowl. Bowl, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, like a small bowl. And one thing I really like, it's very simple. You know, when you cook your rice, you know, steam your rice, white rice plain, and then towards the end of cooking the rice, you dig a hole in the middle of the rice and you put that bowl inside, that bowl of netetu, um, uh, right? Mm. The, you know, the bowl with like the onions and, and the scotch bonnet and all that in the middle and you cover it with the rice. And for the last minutes of steaming the rice, you no, know, like the last 10 minutes or so. And then that rice will have like this amazing flavor. You know, you, you serve the rice, you make sure you take the bowl out and you put the bowl on the side. Traditionally, I don't know if you remember how we eat around the bowl. You know, we have the big bowl and the, the rice is in, in there and the, you know, you put whatever sauce you want and, 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 and meat and vegetables. But that rice has a nice, really subtle fermented flavor just because the last minute there was this steamed um, uh, f- fermented netetu bowl inside it. And that from time to time, you take a piece of the netetu, you can add it to the rice and the sauce. It really adds, a, you know, like a, a nice bunch of 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 of, of, of netetu in your in your mouth so it's really a, a, a way i like to do it but there's so many other ways to, to do it you know you can just simply sprinkle it into your sauce and and taste it and and add as you as you like until you get the flavor that you want in it you can put it in your tomato sauce like you mentioned it's great with the tomato sauce you think that would and work in a rice cooker yeah yeah it would work in a rice cooker you do it you cook the rice and then when you're going to keep the rice warm, right, mm-hmm. you open it and you, and you put that bowl inside. You, you know, you shape the bowl with everything, the onions and everything, and you put it inside. You cover it with the rice, right? You, put, you dig a hole and you put the bowl, you cover it with the rice, and then you close your rice cooker and you allow it to, you allow it to stay warm for however time you want, and you'll see the difference. Mm-hmm. I love it like that. It's, it's really great. And with a simple sauce on top of it, it's like amazing. It's amazing. I will try that. Uh, John, you got a couple questions for Pierre you got to rip off? Uh, not for Pierre specifically. Oh, I thought you had some Pierre style. No, no. We got to. All right, uh, So one last thing on the way out because uh, I'll get murdered if I don't. So <laughs> let's talk uh, Tibu Jen for a minute. Uh, uh. Now, all of the, so it's fish with it's fish and broken rice and vegetables and tomato and the fermented products like netatu gedge yet right mm-hmm. uh and you yeah. stuff the fish with an herb mixture beforehand right and people can look yeah. it up that's uh-huh. not that's not what's important it's a you'd say it's like culturally maybe the most important dish right or no oh yeah it's the national dish of senegal yeah so it, it, it 
Mm-hmm. I read a bunch of recipes for it. And what interests me mm-hmm. about the recipes, at least the ones that seem kind of more serious, is that there's a very specific layering of food. Like put this in, take out, remove, and, and rest <laughs> while you cook the rest. Very, very specific, right? You know, yep. the, fi- uh-huh. the fish goes in for this amount of time with the vegetables. The fish comes out. This vegetable comes out first. Then this vegetable. Then more liquids added. Then yep. rice. Then at Like, it's all very – and, like, you know, you put the netatu in. At this point, you put the gedge in. At this point, you know what I mean? Yep. So it's, like, very, very specific. So what is the difference? Like, how, like, it's clearly, like, culturally mediated but also probably taste mediated. So what is the effect of, like, all of that time layering? Well, the effect is you'll you'll see it at the first bite. You know, the first time you put a spoonful or a handful, because we eat with our hands. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. The first time you put a a handful of that rice into your mouth, you're going to taste, if you pay really good attention, you're going to taste all those layers. You know, you'll taste the the, the gadget and the yet, which are the fermented parts that's been added in that broth, because there's there's level, right? You still, okay, let's let's go back through the steps of cooking television. You know, you start with the tomatoes and the onions and the oil. You cook it very slowly until the tomatoes have released all their sugar, and and then you add the the, the broth, right? It, or the water, because the water is going to turn into broth. Right? You add the water, and then your vegetables. You take the vegetables first, the starchy vegetables that are going to take a little longer to cook, like cassava or carrots. You know, and the vegetables are optional, the one you're choosing, but you, traditionally it's usually cassava, carrots, you know, sometimes sweet potatoes. And then you cook them and you take them out. Then you add your cabbage, your eggplants, you know, you cook them and you take them out, you know, and when you cook them until they get to that, you know, almost like, you know, it still has some bite to it, but it's very soft. And you take it out. But all those flavors have been in that broth now, right? Then you add your fish, that fish has been stuffed with that parsley mixture that we call rough, you know, you, 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 that parsley has garlic, scotch bonnet, parsley in it, and salt and pepper, and you pound it well into a paste, and you stuff the fish, and then you cook it. So that fish, usually it's a whole fish, or it's a fish that has a steak fish, you know, with the bones and all that. So you get another fish broth uh, flavor that adds to the vegetable flavors, and you have added now the fermented, you know, fermented conch, for a dried fish, so that's also that fermented flavor that comes out. So all those layers come. And the last part, you know, when you take all those things out, you have a broth. In that broth, you add the rice. The rice cooks and the rice comes out with all those flavors in it. But, but, but you, when you, before you add the rice, you take some of that broth out. And in that broth that's going to serve as a sauce, you add some tamarind too. You know, you add tamarind in that broth. So you have the acidity of the tamarind and the fruitiness of it and the and the fermented and the, the and, and the vegetable stock and the fish stock and the spiciness from the the mixture that you use to do to stuff the fish. So it's so intense and so delicious. And that's why, you know, it, it's kind of laughable when they compare Chewijan to paella really, because it's so much more I mean really, right? I mean, it's oh, like, spoken like a true chauvinist, I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am really telling the truth here, man. It's like it's a pie with flavor, with so much flavor, you know. But you no, know, the only uh, resemblance is that it's served the same way. It's a, it's a rice, that's a red rice and and seafood, 
and vegetables, whichever, you know, and they serve on a on a bowl, you know, like the the Spanish do. That's the only dish they serve on a bowl on a platter, you know. So so that's how we do it. But that's the only difference. The rest, you know, there's so much flavor in Cebujan. Well, and those, those, those steps bring it. Yeah, yeah, you're making me very hungry. Uh, and also, congratulations, you have a fairly young daughter. Uh, I, if you want to pronounce her name, I don't want to butcher it. It's a beautiful name, though. Naya. Naya. So it's N-A apostrophe I-A. So it's Naya. Naya. She's yeah. going to be one-year-old one next week. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, congratulations, yeah. Pierre. Thanks for coming on. And uh, everyone needs to look out for uh, the Phonio products in Whole Foods and Target and look out for the Phonio beer. Is it going to be called Taranga or no? Taranga, yeah. It's going to be called Taranga. And uh, and there's going to be draft as well. And uh, and there's other, other ideas that uh, Brooklyn Brewery is coming up with, but I'll let them announce it with the Phonio beer. So it's... it's is there oh, and and you can get all those for your products at yourlele.com before going to Whole Foods. Go to yourlele.com. That's where it's, uh, that's that's where you really have an impact on the uh, on the communities that are growing it. Yeah, go to the source first. Uh, and I think Nastasia, correct or not correct? Today is the motto from today is they robbed me, they took everything I had. It was a blessing. <laughs> 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 Cooking issues.